good evening, good night, wherever or whoever you may be. I am Alan Arante, and this is The Recluse Podcast. Today's guest is Dee Bridget. She is a health educator with the Department of Public Health in Los Angeles County. She earned a bachelor's degree in health education with a minor in human sexuality from San Francisco State University. She then went on to earn a master's in public health from Cal State University, Northridge. In this conversation, we discuss her early interests in human sexuality and how that led her to her degrees in public health. We talk about the current social climate and the ways she has faced racism in her own life. We talk about times that people have asked to touch her hair and what that means to her and what that feels like. We talk about times that people have been surprised that she is black just because of how articulate her speech is. Towards the end, Dee suggests that this movement must sustain its energy if real change is to occur. This can't just be a moment, but a movement. Hours after we spoke, Dee reached out to correct herself on one point. She was giving a list of names of black people that have been killed by the police in recent years. She includes the name of Atatiana Taylor. She really meant to say Atatiana Jefferson. I'm moved by that correction because she clearly cares enough to honor these individuals enough to get their names right. And it shows that she was reflecting about everything she had just said. It was a great conversation, and I hope we do it again. So without further delay, this is a portrait of D. Bridget. So I am D. Bridget. I am a health educator with the Department of Public Health for Los Angeles County. Um, and I am almost 30 years old. Wow. What does that job entail? So there are various um, subsections of the Department of Public Health. I am in the um, unit for substance abuse prevention and control. And we are a part of a project called the Wellbeing Center Project. It is a project that is designed to provide safe spaces in high schools throughout Los Angeles County. And we provide services under sexual health, mental health, um, and substance use. Um, so in the center, some of us, we partner with, well, all of our centers partner with Planned Parenthood, but some of our centers have actual mini Planned Parenthood clinics where students can get tested for various STIs, including HIV. Um, they can also access birth control. They can also do um, one-on-one -on -one counseling with some of the providers and everything is confidential. The services in the well-being center are confidential as well as the services in the Planned Parenthood clinics are confidential to the students. Wow. Uh, your position, did it require you to go to college or did you work your way up? How, how did you find yourself doing this? That's a big and loaded question. Um, so my dream in high school was to be a sex therapist. I felt like everyone just kept telling me, don't talk about sex. You can't talk about that, but you also can't do it until you're married. And if you do do it before you're married, you're going to go to hell. And it's like, okay, wait, what? I'm sorry. How does I'm, I'm unclear. Um, as time went on, when I realized what I wanted to do, I kind of just asked people, you know, how do you become a sex therapist? No one could really answer me. 
But when I was in college, I was studying psychology and there was a really awesome professor who was teaching human sexuality and she had a MPH. I had no idea what that was. And I talked to her and told her what I wanted to do. And she said, you could go into public health and become a sexual health educator. And I was like, oh, this sounds exciting. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, I want to do that. I want to talk about sex just like you do. Um, Went to grad school, got my master's, started working in the HIV field, um, specifically with women of color who um, were living with HIV and AIDS. And then that job led me to this one. I will say, yes, you do have to have a bachelor's and master's degree for my position, um, as well as I'm a senior health educator. There are health educa- substance abuse health educators and reproductive health educators. Everyone on staff has a bachelor's and a master's, um, but we are considering, you know, getting float staff and those requirements may just be a bachelor's. Wow, that's incredible. Um, what school did you go to? Did you get a master's and BA from the same college? I did not. So I was I stayed within the Cal State system, but I got my bachelor's from San Francisco State University. And then I got my uh, master's degree from Cal State Northridge. Wow. OK, awesome. My buddy, he just got a sociology master's. He just finished the master's program at CSUN. Um, oh, nice. And it's so awesome. I'm so proud of him. He He's like one of the smartest guys I know. Uh, I have a lot of respect for people that pursue those types of um, degrees where they have social well-being in mind for others. Um, what's What was your BA in and what was your master's in? Like, what are the titles? So I have a bachelor's of science in health education with a minor in human sexuality studies. And then I have my master's in public health. When did this uh, passion start for you? When did you start to notice that you were interested in those fields? Uh, um, Pretty young, but I was in sixth grade and I was attending a Christian school. So it went from kindergarten to eighth grade and around sixth grade, well, fifth grade, actually, you know, as adolescents were developing, some girls, you know, were getting boobs, some others, not so much. Um, and we're kind of just like, well, what's happening here? And no one's really explaining. Um, but of course we know every year mom joke and we know dirty jokes and things (laughs) like that. So it wasn't really making any sense. There's this disconnect for me, at least And in sixth grade, they were like, okay, we're going to talk about this now. We're going to talk about sex. And I'm like, oh my God, what is sex? Is this the thing that no one wants to talk about? Because I want to talk about it. Um, (laughs) that teacher managed to get around a whole semester of not talking about it. And I'm like, why does everyone keep holding this information from me? What is sex? Why is it so, why is everybody like, just get this look on their face when I say it? Um, (laughs) Finally kind of just did my own research. And for 90s kids who had the internet and everything, that was just typing in sex on like AOL. (laughs) Um, And I was like, this is why everybody's upset. Like what's, I don't even know what's happening here. But then we were promised seventh grade that they would go through, um, they would talk about sex. We would have a sex talk. We got a book. It was Sex, Love, and God. That was the title, I believe. 
And it was almost, it was a red book. If you think about kind of like the scarlet letter almost, that's mm. what that thing was in the bins wow. underneath our <laughs> in the bins underneath our seats. And I remember just wanting so badly to open it. But if you even touched it, like the teacher said, don't open that. And I'm just like, I, I you, tell me what's in this book. So we got to towards the end of the semester, and finally, most of the class was like, we looked at every book we have. Why won't you tell us about this book? Why haven't we read this book? And the teacher says, honestly, there's really nothing I need to tell you about what's in that book other than if you have, you need to wait to have sex until you're married. And if Mm. you don't wait, you're going to hell. And I'm like, what? That's it? Like, what does that (laughs) even mean? Because the other thing too is like, there were folks in my class at the time who were experimenting some of them it's just like touching some of them it's oral sex some people were starting to have sex so you have mainly a lot of girls leaving that class and crying because they're like i i did this and now i'm going to hell what the hell does that mean um eighth grade wasn't any better they didn't really explain it and so when i got to high school i went to a small high school um there was like 60 people in my graduating class and ninth grade, from ninth grade to my senior year, there was always someone who had to leave because they were pregnant. And I was also at a Catholic mm-hmm. school. So in Catholic, wow. at a Catholic, right, at a Catholic school, you can't, they won't let you walk pregnant. They would let the guy walk, of course, but the girl had to go to <laughs> another school. Um, and I just kept seeing like girls would have to leave in the middle of the school year or towards the end and find another school. And I'm like, what? Okay, so sex leads to people getting pregnant. That's one thing I've heard about it. Is there, <laughs> any way, is there any way to stop this? And so my own research just kind of led me to like, oh, you need condoms or birth control. I'm like, okay, well, where can I get a condom? You can get them from um, a sex shop, but you can't go in there. You're not 18. You can get them from a drugstore, but once again, you can't get them. You're not 18. So we're kind of screwed if we want to, if we do want to have sex. That led me to utilizing resources, aka cousins and other family members that were of age, and just kind of explaining what I was doing. I myself was not sexually active, was not for a lack of trying, Um, but (laughs) I, I, I just wanted to help. I didn't want to keep seeing my friends have to leave because they were pregnant and knowing full well, if they were at a public school, like they're going to walk regardless. They're going to be able to graduate regardless, at least within the school, the school's not going to have a problem. So as time went on, I just kind of started to educate myself. I was the person at Barnes and Noble in the love, sex and relationship section, because what I realized was like, there's sex, there's love, there's relationships. And sometimes relationships don't include sex. You're asexual. Sometimes your relationships um, are centered around sex and maybe that's totally what your relationship's about and like that being normal as long as there's a conversation Mm. being had about that. And all of that just kind of led me to wanting to have all these conversations with friends. So I was a person at homecoming and prom for sure. If anyone needed a condom, I had it. (laughs) Um, I could even tell you how to put it on if I needed to. Um, I could also tell you where to go and get tested, Um, but also understanding that, like, 
Oxnard's kind of a small town. And so you can go somewhere and someone may know you and that would deter a lot of people from going. I then ended up becoming the person that people would tell their symptoms to. And I am told in that moment, I'm like, okay, well, I'm here to help a friend. But it's also like, I don't know if what you're experiencing is a yeast infection or if it is gonorrhea, like you do need to go and get checked. But the love of all of that, the love of sexual health and sexuality and teaching that kind of started when I was in high school, just because I went rogue. <laughs> wow, that that's so interesting. You, It sounds like you just sort of had this organic curiosity about the subject and nobody was giving you answers and you had to go find out yourself. You're, you're making these observations out in your world and saying, and, and questions are arising in your own head. What were your, what was your stance? Let's say even just keep it to your high school years. What was your stance on, on sex in general? Did you think like, Oh, people really ought to be married. Were you more of like a free love sort of person? You know, what were your thoughts about sex in high school? What did you think about people doing it? I thought that, you know, it was, it's already, I was forming my ideas while it was happening around me already. Um, and so I grew up in a very religious household. And so that household taught you, taught me that you don't have sex before you're married. It's something you do with someone you love. So when I found out that all these folks around me were having sex, in my mind, I'm assuming, oh, everybody loves each other. <laughs> and so that's why they're having sex with, with each other. Got it. Um, but then, you know, you see folks like they have sex and then like they break up or something like that or just, you know, relationships fall and the people fall in and out of love. And so I started to realize like, okay, maybe it's not necessarily that they love each other, but they like each other a lot. And a lot of that might be, you know, just a physical attraction. Um, so my stance went from when I was younger to kind of just following what the household was saying, mm. you know, wait till you're married with, with, and do it with someone you love. When I got to high school, especially around like my sophomore year, because I also started reading a lot of erotic romance novels, I was like, oh, if you just really <laughs> like think someone's hot, you can have sex with them. If they want to. Got it. Okay. So I honestly didn't, I couldn't even tell you, I didn't have a strong stance. I knew for sure I was against the idea that you had to wait till you're married because I just felt like, no, because what if someone get like, find someone they really love, but they just don't want to get married. They can have sex. Or, you know, what if someone's just like, listen, I really want to screw you. And oh my gosh, you really <laughs> want to screw me too. Like, can't that be okay? So I knew what I didn't agree with, but I also couldn't form like what my stance was at the time. But in college, it became clearer that, you know, my stance is the same as then it is as then as it is now. I fully support folks who decide that they want to go out and have sex, the kinkiest sex or the most vanilla sex. As long as there is consent, there's communication, and the two of you have like your set boundaries and no one's crossing them. You can, and you're, no one's harming anyone under age, any animals. I really just go and do whatever you'd like, truly. That's where I'm at now. <laughs> so during your college years, 
Did you get to confirm some of these ideas you had? So you you were just saying how you knew what you disagreed with Mm -hmm. and you were sort of starting to venture in your mind far enough to say, well, you know, if someone, you know, thinks you're hot, you think they're hot, it's okay to have sex. Um, And I'm not asking this next question for details. I'm just curious about how (laughs) you're, so I don't, you know, I'm not like a creep, Uh, but did you get to confirm those ideas in college? And what I mean by that is, did you get to have these experiences you were imagining and how did it come? How did it develop at the end of your college experience in terms of sex? That's a good question. So in terms of experiences, I did have my own personal experiences. Um, Were some of those like sexual experiences? Yes. Were some of those like working in organizations where we're advocating for sexual health? Yes. Mm. I actually had a very good, awesome experience of being um, a peer advocate for a sexual health organization on campus called Peach. So Peer Educators Advocating Campus Health. It was run by an awesome woman, um, Ingrid Ochoa, who was really great about educating all her peers, especially she, especially because this program couldn't last, can last over two years, depending on when you start. And you can move up to being her intern and things like that. So she really wanted you to understand the ideas that were behind her, ad, like the advocacy that we were doing. Um, in our work that we did, we put a big emphasis on communicating with sexual partners, asking for consent. Um, we even talked about condom negotiation because we understood that sometimes it's not always easy to just say like, or to, to assume that someone's going to be thinking that same safe sex is the same as you, as what you believe it is. For some people, safe sex is just telling you hey, I'm clean. For others, it is showing receipts, showing last time you got tested, what the results were, and exchanging um, those results to make a better informed decision about your the, the sexual experience between the two of you. Um, those tr- kind of transferred over into my life, um, in my personal life, because I realized like, oh, oh wow. there is such a thing as like condom negotiation. I could have said, hey, no, I won't do that. Or, oh, there are these other birth control methods other than the pill. Because even in high school, when I was doing my own research, all I had really heard about was the pill. So I kind of just thought that was it. But then I'm learning like, oh, my gosh, there's Implanon. Like there's an implant. There's an IUD. There's a shot. All this stuff. And how long they last. I was learning about um, various terms that are used in the LGBTQ plus community. Like I learned what intersex was. I learned what non-binary meant. I learned what asexual Mm. was. Um, And then also at the same time, I'm realizing, oh my gosh, I think I identify one of these letters. And I, I recognize like during that time, like, oh, I'm bisexual. Okay. And navigating what that was like for me, because I, I think I probably touched on it when I was in high school, but I didn't think that that's what it was. Maybe at the time I was just probably curious, but in high school, excuse me, in college, I'm like, oh, okay, this is a part of who I am. So I was having these experiences in terms of 
how to educate and how to advocate, but I was also having a lot of personal experiences from uh, those other experiences. Wow. So in the course of high school, you found out that you were bisexual. Kind of. I I recognize that there was a curiosity. When I look back, it was mm. definitely a curiosity, but I was not in any way ready to mm. discuss that or talk about it because I had friends around me who were bisexual. I had friends around me who were lesbian and fully 100% supported them. If you like it, I love it. But I just didn't even know how to broach that. I knew there was a curiosity there, but I didn't even know like how to deal with it. Um, and I also was just like super nervous and scared because I have family members or I had folks in my household who were very vocal about how they viewed same sex relationships. You could be curious, but that's probably all you were. It wasn't really anything serious. So yeah, you're so what you just said, you're, you've folks in your family have been vocal about what they think about same sex marriage and stuff. Did you hear, um, for lack of better terms, negative, uh, negative feelings towards those groups when you were younger? And did your ears sort of perk up? And did you think to yourself to your, you know, your younger self? Did you think like, hmm, I don't know if I agree with that? Yes. So um, I didn't, the views weren't necessarily hot. Like some folks in my family were very loud about expressing their, um, views around the LGBT community and the rights that they should have. And it was very much an, in the negative, but in my immediate household, it was just something that wasn't really talked about. So you don't, you're not really able to form an opinion unless you're sitting down with that person and they're watching something and maybe a gay couple shows up or something like that. Or you tell them something that happened at school, a story that you learned, an article that you read, and then you can gauge the reaction. And that happened to me. Um, one time I had a, I had two friends over and they were a couple, but my, my parents didn't know that I did. So during the process of the sleepover, we had to separate into these, into different rooms because there were so many people and they were with one group. I don't know what happened, but three of the other people that were supposed to be in that room came over to my room. And I'm like, what the heck is happening here? And one of the girls was like, oh, well, so-and-so and, and the other person are kissing. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay. I didn't know they needed a whole room for that or whatever. <laughs> um, so we're like chilling, we're sleeping because it was like four in the morning. When we all woke up at like nine, we all came to the kitchen except them. And so I went and kind of just knocked on the door and I was like, hey, we're making pancakes. You guys want to come out and make pancakes? They said, no. I said, okay. So we're all in the kitchen doing our thing. My dad comes in and he's just like, oh, where are the other two? And I'm all like, I think they're still sleeping. And so he's like, well, let me go check. And I didn't notice, but the door was locked. Um, oh. And so my dad knocks on the door and he also jiggles the handle. And he's like, what the heck? And I come out from the kitchen. I'm like, dad, what's going on? And he's like, why is this door locked? And he's now banging on the door. Wow. And so I'm like, okay, well, can you back up? Because... You're scaring other people. 
The girls end up coming out and they kind of just like run to the kitchen um, and no one says a word. But when everybody leaves, my dad was like, I think I'm going to call that girl's mom and have a talk. And I'm like, talk about what? And he says that she's gay. And I'm all like, why do you need to have that conversation? Mm. And he's like, well, she needs to know this isn't any of your business. And I was like, it's none of your business either. Like, I love her. That's my friend. I don't care. Why do you? And I think at the time I was like 12 and he's just looking at me and he puts, but he puts the phone (laughs) down. And so I called my friend or no, I aimed her, excuse me. I aimed her. And I was like, listen, you cannot do that again. My dad was just about to call your mom. I don't care what you guys do, but just don't do that again. Otherwise I can't help you. And like from that day, we never had another incident that happened here. But that one instance um, or experience made me realize or helped me gauge my dad's reaction and his Mm. stance on, you know, same sex relationships. And oh, my God, what if I was ever in one? It would be a holy fit, holy fit. But then I ended up coming out to him about eight months ago and he was like, Okay, that's cool. Can can I go back to watching TV now? And I'm like, what? <laughs> wow. Um, so I'm curious. So you were about 12 years old when that happened, and it was two mm-hmm. girls. You said, mm-hmm. do you think that that maybe was their first or one of the few opportunities they had to explore their own sexuality? Probably. I I'm thinking more of I think of them, and I'm I'm just thinking about like how they constantly try had to try and find ways to even like go for a walk together because they're I think their parents knew like they knew they just didn't say anything and they did a lot to keep them apart they both played softball but at random one girl's mom pulls her from like the main team or the team that she's or the team or organization she's been playing with forever to some other team that's a little bit farther out. And Mm. it made no sense to me, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, maybe it's a softball thing. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I think it was one of the few opportunities they had to just be with each other. Yeah. Wow. And they were around your age, 12 years old. Um, And feelings like that, you know, I know 12 is young, but I know that people have feelings at that age, you know, crush or even sexual feelings. Um, sure. So that's really interesting to me that that would happen at like, was it in all, was it an all girls uh, sleepover? It was, I was never allowed to have even a boy step foot on the property. So it was. <laughs> so you're talking about uh, a few minutes ago, you're talking about your education and how that has informed your life. And you were sort of um, you're, you were developing in college to some degree, like we all do in college. And you were saying how your education informed a lot of that development. What are the harms? And I know that's probably a loaded question, but what are the harms for people who don't have the education that you had and they're sort of having to navigate this sexual life and development? What happens to the people that don't have this education? That is a great question. I think the harm becomes when those folks who don't have that education or don't have that just knowledge about sex and sexuality and healthy, because sex and sexuality also includes healthy relationships. 
We learned mm. a lot about healthy wow. relationships. We talked a lot about what a healthy relationship looks like and what it consists of. And I think that folks who don't have that education then pass on their ideas, their beliefs about sex, sexuality, and relationships to the next generation or the people that they are friends with in their interpersonal relationships um, and interactions. They spread that information. Some of it might be tr- like actual factual information and some of it could be misinformation. Um, but they spread that misinformation and they believe it's fact. They believe it's true and it trickles, it has a trickle down mm. effect. And so what I'm seeing in the schools is the same thing I'm seeing. I was seeing when I was 16 and in high school at an all Catholic high school, the students who are coming in and, you know, we offer them this safe space to talk about what's going on in their lives and, there are some students who they've got this thing and they, they, they feel us out, which is normal. That's great. Like they're feeling us out to see if they can trust us. And mm. finally, when they trust us, they say, okay, so when I go home, when I'm here, I'm, I'm Alan. But when I go home, I'm, I'm Jennifer. My parents do not accept me as a, as a trans person. They wow. don't believe it. They refuse to acknowledge it. I've told them what my pronouns are and they have literally like gone back and or or they've addressed me with the wrong pronouns. Um, We've had students who have come in and they are like, I'm gay. I know I'm gay, but if my dad finds out I'm gay, I'm dead. And some of this, it's a, it's not just the educational piece, but then it's also cultural beliefs. Um, that also trickle down, but either way, all this stuff can, can come to a head and be very harmful. Um, it could have folks like me hold that part of ourselves back or at least share it with very few people. We won't share it with everyone, specifically family, um, because we are afraid of the reaction Either that's because we know what it's going to be and it's going to be bad or it's because we we don't know. It's going to, we have no idea what's going to happen when we say something. But I think just to answer your question, the, the lack of knowledge or the lack of education around this can be detrimental. But the good news is you don't have to go to college and get that information because more and more organizations are putting that information out there. It's in, it's all, it's all over the internet. There are videos to help. And specifically some of these organizations have done this. So that way families can have these conversations. Mm. Parents can be educated or at least be open to, to learning something different or something that they once shunned in to better support their, their children. So Wow. It's, you know, I know I do this a lot and a lot of other people do it. We, I think it's so easy to, to, to fail to notice how complex these issues are. For instance, for instance, we were talking about sex education, but really it's, it's not in a vacuum sex, you know, thoughts about Mm -hmm. sex and sex education is not in a vacuum. I, I, I'm getting this picture in my mind of a semantic web. It's, it's, 
everything's connected to everything, you know, so you're talking yeah. about culture, you're talking about culture, the family affairs, um, the, the norms, the, the failure to understand each other, the fear we have mm-hmm. when bringing up these subjects um, and healthy relationships just in general, the, the psychology and the sociology involved. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm pleased to hear that your, you know, your education, it's so much broader than what say it's, it's more broad than what it might say on your master's degree, for example. Um, and you're a great um, advocate. I, I can just tell you're, you're, you're knowledgeable on a lot of these subjects. So I just want to give you that credit. Um, and thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of what's going on right now, just changing the subject, what are your thoughts on the social climate right now with the protests and, and all, and Trump even, you know, what, what's going through your mind during this time? Wow. So much. Um, one, I don't feel like anyone should be shocked anymore. That's something mm. that constantly goes through, goes through my mind a lot. And it's actually one of the reasons why I've been on and off Instagram just mm-hmm. because, you know, slowly, very slowly. Um, and I'm speaking more about white folks are starting to pick, like starting to realize like their complicity. Cause I don't think that they mm-hmm. don't know. I can't, I can't say that anymore. It's not that they <laughs> don't know. They now know and now realize like, oh, me staying silent is actually me condoning this. Mm. And I have to, I have to do something. Some of those, some folks, it's very much like they, they've started to say stuff. Um, for me, I noticed that a lot of folks like some of them were still acting confused, but they know, they know what to do because they either reached out to me or some other black person um, or they're just, they really are just truly completely clueless. Um, but I don't, I think that everything that's going on right now, um, the social unrest, this is not new. This was going to come to a head at some point. Um, because if you think about it, whenever black folks are demanding justice Brown folks are demanding justice. It's not like it is for white folks. It's very much an easy process. Sometimes, excuse me, it can be, um, in my eyes, a bit of an easier process to get that justice they're seeking. But look what it took just to get three other officers arrested in, in the case of George Floyd. It took all of this just to get those three officers, three other officers arrested. As far as 45 and his comments, especially um, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. My God. Yeah. I, uh, he, I mean, he knows, he, he knows where, like, I don't think this is something that he just said because he thought, Oh, Hey, look, I'm rhyming. No, yeah, you cute. know exactly. Right. You know exactly where you got this from. You know um, where it's coming from. You know what that means. And you are even more disgusting for it. And so a part another um, thing that I've noticed, because I have family members um, who voted for Trump and 
They've always, much like many of his supporters, they try and defend. They'll, 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 they will defend him. It's, it's why almost it's cult like. Um, so I was waiting. I was waiting to see who was going to go for it because I was going to go for it. <laughs> um, but what was interesting is for quite a few, at least the ones that I know actively use social media and will state how they feel, they weren't able to. They just couldn't because mm-hmm. they, some of them knew very well where that came from and knew that that man really screwed up um, as if he already hasn't. But then some of them just realized like they were starting to realize within themselves, like, no, this really is not right. Why does this keep happening? Oh my God. Why are you saying that they're protesting because of this? The riot is, is happening because of that. And realizing like, I can't stand behind you, which was, which in my opinion, for those small few, it was great to see, but that to me was not enough. That was a piece of it. I'm happy that you see, you can't support this orange piece of biohazard waste. (laughs) Um, But you, there still has to be more, but nobody was really going deeper below the surface. Everybody was keeping it real surface level, in my opinion. And I think that's another reason why we are at where we're at. Um, Black folks have been really, we've, this is our lived experience for most of us. Maybe we don't all have the same experiences in terms of um, um, negative run-ins with the police that turn into life or death situations. Um, We may not all have those, but we've all experienced I can pretty much guarantee we've all experienced microaggressions, discrimination. Maybe there was blatant racism directed right at us and watching as folks around us said and did nothing. And also us, in some instances, feeling like we couldn't say anything. This is a buildup of 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 those things, to be honest. Wow. So. From your perspective, you, as as a black woman, you, and you see this George uh, Floyd video, even if you just saw 10 seconds, you know what it's about. Yep. Um, is it sort of the thing where it's like, you know, well, like you just said, th- this isn't new, people. We, we've been seeing this for decades, for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how, you know, it, do you think there's any black person in this country that's shocked by this? If they are... It's because they they are not paying attention um, or because for whatever reason, because you have black folks who have still in this moment. And I can't imagine why, but it's it's not my place, um, have still found ways to try and support this current administration and try and support 45. And some of that, when I see that, I'm like, oh, I don't think it's I don't think that you're this you're this unaware. I think that what you're doing is you're, you're trying to play safe. You're trying to show folks that you're safe, which is, um, that's kind of like a, what's the word I'm looking for? A strategy to keep black folks safe. It's also kind of a stereotype. Um, the good ones, you know, and I've also myself at times in my life been labeled as such, Um, but it's that label and people thinking that that label is going to keep them safe and unharmed 
from folks who look at their skin color as a threat. So I think it's, it could be a combination of those two things. Some people who are just like, I, I, nope, I don't, I'm not paying attention. I don't want to pay attention. I can't pay attention. I can't deal with this. And then there are some folks who I would like to, at least I would like to believe, are trying to keep their good guy status and are agreeing with folks who, who don't really don't agree with me and don't agree with, uh, or don't have a problem with what's happening right now, just to keep themselves safe. You were talking about how every black person has has more than likely been the victim of racism, and you said microaggressions and subtle uh, forms of of um, racism. What are some of those subtle forms of racism that you've experienced that somebody who isn't black can't really understand or hasn't experienced themselves? Oh, that's great. Um, I was called an Oreo for a good majority of my life. What that term, that term is derogatory. What that means is I'm black on the outside. Obviously you can tell by my melanin, you can't see it, but in my picture, you stuff, <laughs> I am black on the outside, but I am white on the inside based upon the fact that, you know, maybe I don't listen to as much hip hop um, as, someone else or as much R&B my favorite me personally my favorite genre of music is indie rock um so I got a lot of crap for that and then another thing is when uh, another reason why you can be an Oreo and it's also a derogatory thing to say I've had folks when I worked as a um customer service rep at a fast food restaurant. And so I'm working the drive-thru. They can't, they can't see me. They can only hear me. I get to, they get to the window and they go, Oh my God. I'm like, what? I didn't expect, I didn't expect you to be black. I'm like, whoa. Why? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. The, the other way that some people would say it is, um, you talk, you speak so well. Um, I've also heard from other folks, you talk white, which is basically it to it's what it's saying is black folks, um, are not articulate. They are not eloquent speakers, which is a lie. Um, the only articulate and eloquent speakers are white folks and look at you, how educated you must be wow. to speak. <laughs> like well, that's some like compliment. <laughs> right, exactly. It's, so it's like the, that's another thing. They're backhanded compliments. Yeah. What and these people, um, are you hearing these things from white people or or people of color? I the way so I've had black folks who say, You talk so white, why do you talk like that? Um, mm. I've had white folks who have said, You don't sound black. And I'm like, I really want to ask you. How, how a black person sounds, but I'm at work right now and I don't have the time. I got what? a busy drive through don't have the time. Um, I think another thing that was interesting to me that happened when I started wearing my hair more natural um, was I like to switch up my hairstyles. And so one day I was at work, I was working at a pharmacy at the time. I was, I had these um, these faux locks, they basically look like dreadlocks, but they're not real dreadlocks. And this guy walks up, this white guy walks up and he has actual dreadlocks. 
And he's like looking at me and I'm just ringing his stuff up because we're busy. I turn around and he goes, oh, you have dreads. And I said, yeah, I'm not going to explain to him that they're faux dreads and all that stuff. I'm like, yeah, I got dreads. <laughs> and he goes, do you think that's professional for the workplace? And I go, I haven't heard any complaints from my, my manager. And he's right behind me. And so my manager goes, there's nothing wrong with her hair. <laughs> um, but it was interesting to me that him saying that because, you know, he's in a biz. Keep in mind, he's got a button down shirt, slacks on, and he has dreads. And <laughs> I am working in the back of the pharmacy and he looks at me and he goes, are you sure that's a good hair choice? I'm like, well, if you can wear those ratty things to work, which you need to get redone, if you can wear those <laughs> to your job. I know I can wear these beautiful ones here. But that's another thing, too, like facing discrimination based upon your your hair and now having that policed to the point where California had to make a, a policy or a law that you could not discriminate against an African-American person because of their hair choice, how they right. chose to wear their hair. So things those are some examples, but there are many Many, many. And I can I when we're done with this, I can actually send you a link to something. Please. Any resources. Um, You're talking about hair. I've seen on I don't know where I've seen this, maybe TV shows, maybe just online where a white person will come. They think they're complimenting a black person or they're trying to be woke or something. And they'll come up and ask to touch a black person's hair or something (laughs) like Uh what is that? What is that effectively saying? Yeah. What is that saying? Well, I will say this. Um, I appreciate the folks that ask because there are folks who have just gone by and touched my hair without ever asking. They have my like, God, it's so violating. Oh, very, very. Um, but the thing is, when I was younger, I didn't know that I had like that voice to say that and say, I don't want you to touch my hair. Um, but I, when I was a kid or it's even a teenager, I would have teachers and things like that. Just kind of like when I would straighten my hair, especially they would come up and kind of just like not completely run their whole hand through it, but run their hands through the end. Wow. Oh my gosh, your hair is so soft. It's so pretty. <laughs> I'm like, thank you. This is so awkward. But then, um, when I got to college, that's when we were having more conversations about like, don't touch my hair. Don't ask me if you can touch my hair. So some people have different views on it. Uh, for me, do not come up and touch my hair without asking me. I will <laughs> might get hurt. Um, but I appreciate folks who ask. What I don't appreciate, and this was an experience for me, you sometimes people will ask and you say no. And then they get not necessarily combative, but they just get up in arms. They're just like, well, why? And I'm like, why do I have to have a reason for you to not touch me? <laughs> it's a part of me. Don't touch me. But then like some, I remember being in a situation where it was happening right in front of the pharmacy where I worked and this lady started getting kind of loud. And so I just let her to let her go on her way and just like be left alone but that was a breaking point where I was like I need to wear my hair up I can't wear Mm. it down anymore because or at least I can't wear it down when I'm in here or I need to wear it so that way it's in a ponytail and no one can like reach around me and touch my hair and if they try and reach around me obviously I can block you and stop that but I just couldn't 
be on the floor and stalking stuff and have my hair down. Um, but it's, I appreciate the people who ask it. You can ask. I, I personally don't have a problem if you want to ask, but don't just reach out and touch. Don't do what the Supreme said. Don't reach out and touch me. You need to ask it. Like, I wonder, I wonder what the motivation is for some people or actually for anybody. I feel like sometimes people want to do something like that to show you they're not racist. Like, Oh, here's, here's somebody, here's a black person who I can demonstrate my, my, you know, anti-racism or something, but I feel like it just doesn't always come across. It, nah, I would actually have to disagree with you. It has, I would say that th- those things, um, they're deeply rooted in the fact that at one point in this, um, in the world, black folks were considered a thing to be owned. We were slaves and that a slave can literally be, they can be touched. They they were touched. They were beaten. They were raped, all this stuff. And just feeling like you still have that power over someone. Now, you know, most white folks today wouldn't necessarily agree with that when they hear me say that, but that's just like what's embedded behind what's ingrained behind that. Right. Um, right. And so it's not as deep as all that trying to show they're not racist. They're very curious. Mm. But my thing is, is like, okay, granted you can be as curious as you would like to be. I'm a curious person. I like to ask questions, but I know when and when not to do something. I know when something is just, going too far. And also when something seems silly, like how many white folks are looking at other white folks and go, Oh my gosh, can I touch your hair? Because no, there's, they they just don't see the appeal. But all of a sudden when, when black folks come into spaces and we change our hair, we do something different. Then it's like, Oh my gosh, I love your hair. May I touch it? (laughs) And it's like, no, can you just be curious from like <laughs> over there? Or they'll, right. they'll, they'll ask like, you know, you can ask questions about like how I achieve the style, but then they'll also ask silly questions like, especially if you go from short to long. Um, oh my gosh, your hair grew so fast. And it's like, you can't be that, that unaware. You can't be right. that. Apparently some folks are. <laughs> I think I it's mean, really you... just rooted in curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I just imagine like, say these people, if you just flip the script, if you or, or or I were to just touch somebody's hair, like how would they feel? You know, my mm-hmm. guess is they wouldn't, they wouldn't like it either. Right. No, I, I don't think, I don't think they wouldn't. And trying to explain that when I used to try and explain it was a whole, a whole <laughs> thing. Because then like, I'm explaining like, don't you see how it's kind of weird that like, you just want to reach out and touch my hair and the people are like... <laughs> I just think it's really pretty. Like, oh my gosh, I think her hair is really pretty. Can I touch your hair? And then the person may say yes. And then they'll say, like, see, it's not that big of a deal. And I'm like, that doesn't, ha- you didn't prove, you didn't prove anything. You just got someone to agree to let you touch their hair for five seconds. You were talking about uh, being called an Oreo before. I myself am actually out of curiosity. What, I know it's a silly question, but what race would you think I am? I don't want to assume that. <laughs> Well, I, I would I, I would assume you're a non-black person of color. There you go. Yeah, I'm I'm Mexican, but I don't know that I've ever been called coconut. But I know that that's a similar uh, phrase to Oreo, where you know you can imagine what it means—just yeah. brown on the outside, white on the inside. 
And my personal experience is that I was raised in, um, I don't know if it was predominantly white people, but the schools, all the teachers were white, a lot of white kids in class. And I just recall in my younger years, um, there was some shame, I think, associated with with this feeling of being a coconut, if, if you will. Yeah. Um, where And it's a shame on both sides because I'm not saying that shame is justified, of course. I'm just telling you how it felt. Mm-hmm. And so being called a coconut, for example, on the one side, Mexican people or brown people are saying I'm not Mexican enough. But then mm-hmm. on the other side, white people are saying that I'm not white enough. And it's this middle ground of shame where it's like I don't feel like I belong exactly anywhere. And yep. I've come I've come to realize that that's just bogus. I don't care to belong in one group or another per se. But when you're young, you don't know how to navigate those feelings of shame. Yep, that's absolutely right. And they they linger. They linger into your adult life. Sometimes they can um, affect the decisions that you make in terms of where you decide to go to school, where if you go off to college and things like that, where you decide to live. Um, your career choice, it can affect a lot of things, especially because over time you stop hearing Oreo, but then you start to look at things as in my, for me, as as someone who was called Oreo as white or black, is this thing that I'm doing? Is this choice that I'm making something Mm, that another black person would make? Is this music that I'm listening to? Is this show that I'm watching something that another black person would watch? Um, or that's my experience. That's my experience from being called an Oreo. Um, and then it also like, because of that Oreo, the, that phrase being said to me, um, it also can affect your relationships, um, intimate partners and things like that, who you choose as intimate partners, because Oreo can mean that I'm not black enough and it can also mean that like for some folks if they're lighter skinned that's another thing that can be something different but as an oreo and i'm very highly melanated um (laughs) it can also be like well i know i wouldn't fit in with the, the white guys and white folks because that like i'm black so you all you sit in this place and you're like well where the hell where the hell do I belong? Do I belong anywhere? It also can affect <laughs> your mental and emotional health. I know it did for me. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. It's so subtle. Or, well, I know some of these things are subtle and some are overt, but there's so much that goes unsaid yes. like that, you know, where we just harbor these feelings and thoughts for years. At, at least I did. Um, and only now in my young adulthood, am I starting to really, find ground and knowing what to cast aside, knowing what's not important to worry about. Um, and I got to say, I'm, you know, I, I'm just a Mexican guy. I, I don't know what it is, what it's like to be black and what this movement means to a black person that's going on right now. But I can say that I'm, I'm hopeful. Think, you know, so many people are getting involved. You look at the protests out there and you see a lot of white people out there mm-hmm. and, I personally am, in, am feeling hopeful. I'm hoping the needle can be pushed in the right direction. Um, how, how are you feeling? Are you hoping for the best? Are you 
what what's your mindset for this pro for this movement going on right now? So I am also myself. I'm a pessimistic person by nature, but I always hold a little bit of hope. Um, these protests definitely look different than when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Um, mm. Back then, it was predominantly like I believe a news anchor said this the other day. The, like that protest when he went to that one was ninety percent black, and you know the protests that are happening right now are very. It's a it's a very mixed crowd, and that's an awesome awesome thing. But I'm hesitant to get super excited about that because I'm trying very hard to see if this is, and only time will really tell, but I'm looking to see if this is about a moment or the Mm. movement itself, because we Uh. get, we can get momentum and then we lose it and we can get that momentum and then lose it right before we're going to vote. So I've been very vocal with folks, especially when there was blackout Tuesday, I told people, um, you can black out your screen all you want, but what are you doing behind the blackout screen? There's places that are voting right now. Iowa showed up. They removed um, Representative King, um, who has was apparently from his colleagues and folks in the state were insane, was insanely racist. Wow. Um, he was um, removed from office by a Democrat because people showed up and voted. So for mm-hmm. me, I'm like, OK, I like what I'm seeing. And I appreciate all the people that are saying they're allies. And I appreciate all the people that are trying to figure out how they can step up in this moment. But this, if, if you're an actual ally, then this is going to continue even past when you vote. But when you mm. vote, you're going to remember this. You're going to remember this. You're going to look to your leaders of your community, whether um, immediate. So like in the city, county, state. Um, federal level, you're going to look at all of that. And you're going to, what you're going to do if you're an ally and you're really trying to show up and you're trying to be a part of the movement is you're going to try and see who in all these different offices that are up for re-election are really here and listening to the people and really seeing this unrest and going, here's my plan to um, tackle, po- tackle police brutality. Um, here is my plan to, uh, make sure more resources are given to the community. For example, uh, Mayor Garcetti said that he was going to cut the budget for law enforcement and spread, I think 150 million or something like that to, um, other, other sectors, But as far as I can tell, it wasn't being very specific. At the same time, they're still slashing the budget for education. They're Mm. still slashing the budget for public health. And this is a public health crisis. So while they're going to slash the law enforcement budget and put into other things, it can only go so far if you're still slashing money from other areas that are, are of the most importance. So... I just want all those same people, all the people that are at the protest, I want all the same people that are saying that they're allies to show up in November and the various dates when they'll be voting mm. within their states and their cities 
and vote accordingly. I don't have, for example, black women, we show up every single year. We show up when it, not every single year, excuse me. Every time it's time to vote, we show up and we do our part. But the folks who aren't, specifically from the last presidential election, were white women. I think 52% of white women voted for Trump. Some of those same white women or family members of those white women who did vote for Trump are now going, what do I do? Um, How do I get involved? And my biggest thing to them is, you know how you always used to tell me about how you hate when your Aunt Kathy comes and she starts saying all this MAGA crap and you just hate it and run into your room? Yeah, don't run into your room. Let her know she can't say that in front of you. Let her know exactly how you feel. Check her. Don't try, because I've had friends who are like, oh my gosh, D, I should take you with me to Thanksgiving dinner. I'm like, I don't want to hear your Aunt Kathy's bullshit. I don't want to hear that. You do it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And that's what a lot of other um, Black activists and educators are saying is they're like, stop calling us to do this hard work or asking us to like, write up, not necessarily write up something for you, but basically do the hard work. You have to do the hard work. There's no way around that. I had to learn about my own culture, my own history by myself. I spent all this time in school from preschool to um, my graduate studies, learning about every other culture, but my own and learning very minimal about my culture when it came time to actually talk about um, black culture. I had to learn all that on my own. If you're an ally, if you want to help one, you have to recognize your own privilege Two, you have to recognize that all of us have implicit biases and fighting those on a daily basis within yourself. You have to recognize as a white person that you benefit from these racist policies and systems that are put in place to oppress folks of color. And recognizing that within your privilege, what you can do about that. If you're a white woman and you're getting upset about being called Karen, turn (laughs) that into a positive. You know how you can turn that into a positive? When you see black folks being harassed, walk over and inquire like it's absolutely your business. Mm. Ask the officer, um, like, like, like they gave you a wrong order at Red Lobster. Um, excuse me, what's happening here? And watch the officers, the whole mood, I guarantee you will change. And because you've used your privilege to protect and assist, that's how you show up. That's how you're, you just said, okay, I'm an ally and I'm going to do what I need to do as an ally. All of those things. There's all stuff that all of us can do. Because even within the black community, it may not be necessarily anti, um, it may not be necessarily anti-racist thing that we have to do, but what that may look like for us is, combating colorism that's a big thing within our community and we're still like trying to um end that we a lot of self-hate that's been passed down based upon beauty standards that were never meant to include us um we all have our work to do and some of us can have a really big impact and really show up for your black brothers and sisters, if you want to call them that, or just like the folks in your life that you care about who are black or they're folks of color. Like if you are white, you have privilege. It doesn't necessarily mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that, gosh, what are the words? 
Like that they did something wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Like I'm, when I tell you, you have that privilege of like, you have privilege in your whiteness. That's not something that you have to like get up in arms about or be pissed off about. It's just true. You benefit from these systems that were put in place because these systems were put in place to benefit you. They were not put in place to benefit me. That's okay. Your life can still be hard and you have this white privilege. But for folks like me, we don't have that. Part of our lives are very difficult because of the color of our skin. You can't say that. White folks can't say that. What have, you know, what do you say about the some people think this is like a powerful statement and I think it's been axed for years, but what's so wrong and I say this in a in a sort of a in jest and in with sarcasm, what's so wrong with saying, well, I don't see color? <laughs> um, for a long time, I thought that was okay too. It took someone explaining it to me and breaking it down. So when someone says, you know, I don't see color, it allows them to dismiss all the, the, all the experience, lived experiences of mm-hmm. racism that that person may have experienced or wow. the oppression, um, the discrimination, the prejudice, the bigotry that's been thrown in people's way when you say, I don't see color. And so I, myself, when I was younger, thought that that was a good thing. If you don't see color, well, perfect. Yeah, cool. sounds great, but... Yeah, right, of course, it sounds great. But as time goes on, you're saying you don't see color, then you're not seeing why George Floyd... Um, Travis McDade, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Alton, Alton Sterling, um, Michael Brown, Philando Castile, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Atiana Taylor. Why we are like, why this is a problem. If you're saying I don't see color, then you don't see why these unjust oh. murders of black folks oh. are not, are, are a problem. And that's a problem for me. You, if you can't see color, you can't see or you won't acknowledge the painful experiences that I feel like on some level, most people recognize that black folks and people of color have had. And so you take you you do that to make yourself feel better in a way. So you don't it almost is a way for you to get out of having those difficult conversations because, you know, within having those difficult conversations you're going to have to recognize your history and how it is, you know, for white folks, it is covered in other people's blood to, mm-hmm. be, very, to be very frank and honest. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm so happy we talked. I, I think that um, we should talk again sometime. You're, you sound like the kind of person I can just sort of, uh, I'm interested in a lot of topics and you kind of seem like that too. I could just pick from a hat and we could probably talk about it. <laughs> Um, yeah. I'll ask I'll ask you just one more question for now. Um, thank you for your time and your mind. You can answer this any way you like. Okay. D. Bridget, who are you? I am a black bisexual woman 
I am a sexual health educator and advocate, and I am a angry black woman in America. Thank you.